is Tuesday, and for you, me, and my guest Eric, it is Thought Evolution Day. Hi, and welcome back. I'm your host, Stefan Dubier, and today we have a bit of music in the air. Yep, this episode is going to be a little different because we have a real singer and songwriter joining us. Do you have a song in your head right now that is kind of your go-to or pick-me-up to brighten your day? Perhaps a song that gets you going at the gym or one that reminds you of that special person or precious memory. No matter what you are into, what genre best represents your own views, which artist you relate to the best. Music is such a powerful tool for conveying emotions, stories, messages. A world without it would be really dull, gray, and depressing. Eric knows that all too well. I would not call him a starving artist, because as a personal trainer and so-called health freak, he definitely takes really good care of himself and has quite some muscles on him. But Eric is still waiting for that big break to really showcase his art to the world. Perhaps today can be an opportunity for him to share some of his unique gift with our amazing community of Thoughtvolutionists. Just like you need to tune an instrument for it to sound its best, Eric knows that being in tune with your body and your mind is essential for a happy life. When he's not traveling with his girlfriend of seven plus years or his adorable dog Luna, Eric tries to help people see the bigger picture of the mind, body, and spirit connection. Although his work as a holistic life coach is fulfilling in many ways, music has been more than just a passion project for him. It is a gift that has helped him through his darkest moments and allowed him to discover his most authentic self. Looking back at his lifetime of 30 years, something still taking hold of him when it gets quiet and when the music stops is how the overdose of his sister affected him, as well as the deeply rooted desire to inspire his loved ones to join him on the journey of healing. Let the music touch your soul as we get to know Eric, who will never stop believing in his dreams. So from one dreamer to another, (laughs) I'm honored to have Eric here with me to share his journey with all of us. And hey, when Eric gets his big break, we can all consider ourselves a part of that very journey. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about drug addiction, drug overdose, and death. If any of these subjects are triggered to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. It is such a pleasure to have you here, Eric. I know this episode is going to be somewhat different, and I would love to set the mood to perfectly capture you and your journey. You had mentioned to me that for you, it is all about the body-mind-spirit connection. And that's something you do quite frequently to help you with that is breath work. That sounds so simple, right? I mean, we all inhale and exhale every day without giving it too much thought. But this really is something I'm personally still learning a lot about. And I guess in general, most people start understanding the importance of relaxation, clearing your mind, meditation breathwork exercises, and so on as they get older and as just shutting things out becomes harder and harder. Would you be so kind and perhaps give us a mini 
two to three minute basic breathwork lesson that our listeners at home can do along with us right now? That's a great idea, Stefan. I would love to lead everyone through what's called box breathing. And some people may have heard of this before. I believe that people in the military might be taught this, um, Navy SEALs, as a way to calm the nerves. And while we may not be nervous right now, this is still a really easy and accessible technique to bring our awareness into our body, into the breath, and to become more present and to naturally deepen the breath in a way that hopefully carries over into the rest of the day. Most of us don't realize when we're breathing shallow or we're just holding our breath at times, holding tension. So this box breathing is going to be a great way to to become more conscious of how we normally breathe, but also it's a great technique that you could do anywhere. You could do it while you're driving. You could do it while you're uh, going through airport security. You could really do it at any time and, and, and feel the benefits of it. So let's begin with taking a nice deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. And as you breathe in, use the diaphragm or try to use your belly to fill with air. And as you exhale, let the shoulders relax and let the breath fall out. And we'll do one more deep breath all the way in and all the way out. And continue to breathe deeply and slowly while I give just a couple instructions. So this box breath is going to be an inhale, starting with four seconds worth of inhale. And then we're going to hold the breath for four seconds. That'll be followed by a four-second exhale, and then another four-second hold. So that inhale, hold, exhale, hold creates like a box. That's why it's called the box breath. So taking a nice deep breath in and breathing fully out. And now we'll begin breathing in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, hold, two, now five seconds and in, two, three, four, five, hold, two, three, four, five, out, two, three, four, five, hold, 
two, three, four, five. In, two, three, four, five. Hold, two, three, four, five. Out, two, three, four, five. Hold, two, three, four, five. In, two, three, four, five. Hold, two, three, four, five. Out, two, three, four, five. Hold, two, one more for six. And in, two, three, four, five, six. Hold, two, three. Four, five, six, out, two, three, four, five, six, hold, two, three, four, five, six. Good. Now breathe all the way in and all the way out. Again, fully in, fully out. And relax, it's allowing the breath now to breathe itself, letting your body restore its natural rhythm, which might be deeper and softer and slower. Wow, thank you. That was wonderful. I could probably go to sleep right now. <laughs> I want to know more about what you do for your own body, mind, and spirit connection in a moment, but. For now, let's go back to your own roots. No story is really complete without a beginning. You were born in Dale City, Virginia. So, Eric, tell us about life growing up. What did you experience? My childhood, when looking back and in remembrance, was very normal. I was in a neighborhood that was safe. I had a stay-at-home mom. I had a dad that traveled for work, but once he was home, he was taking my brothers and I to do whatever we wanted to do. I am one of five, but I grew up in a household with just two other siblings. I had a much older brother who was, you know, another adult figure. He would take us to do cool things that, you know, maybe our parents might not take us to do. And I also had a, a much older sister who the same would expose us to things that were really cool at the time or really exciting that our friends probably weren't aware of because they didn't have much older siblings. I loved riding anything with wheels. I loved skateboarding and bicycling and, and climbing trees. You know, it's like, to me, it's like this idyllic, not cliche, but just very normal not not sheltered, but there was nothing wrong that I could see looking back. I watched cartoons. I loved Spider-Man. I had action figures. It was wonderful. But as I started to socially integrate in school, I didn't go to preschool or anything, but once I started kindergarten, I began to experience a social anxiety. And I didn't know that's what it was, but I was often uncomfortable. And that anxiety grew the older I got and the more, you know, going through puberty, you start to become concerned with how you look and what people think of you. And my anxiety became chronic slowly but surely. And things that I was, 
I don't want to say naturally good at, but many things that I was able to become proficient in, like playing the guitar and doing different things, or even just athletics, it became increasingly difficult the older I got and the more that I subconsciously cared about what other people thought of me. And I think it's important to paint the picture this way in that there wasn't really anything to be worried about. There were, I didn't have issues at home. I, didn't, I wasn't experiencing any physical issues with my body or my mind. It was every ounce of discomfort that I felt from boyhood to manhood was all within my own mind. It was all within my own perception. In what situations would you be triggered to feel and experience the social anxiety? And what would that look like? Well, very generally speaking, I was just sweating like all the time. I remember I couldn't wear gray shirts because my pits would be wet. I would go to the bathroom in between classes and point or even during class to go to the bathroom, but I would point the hand air dryer at my armpits to try to dry my arms. And the fact that I was so noticeably sweaty for a reason that I didn't understand, it just exacerbated the panic that was in my body, which increased the sweating. But when it really got out of hand was when it was time to perform. So I was a musician from the age of seven, and I would play in front of class, and that was uncomfortable, but I could do it when I was just playing. Once I began to sing, that was a whole other level of panic that was tension in my body, a small shakiness in my voice, making mistakes, sweating profusely, clammy hands. It was like all, all of the above anxious physical symptoms. And Certainly as a wrestler, I, I, I took the route of the athlete in high school. And while in the wrestling room during practice, I was one person who was adaptable and strong and could learn quickly. And it didn't matter that I didn't have the same experience as other people. All that innate ability would fly out the window once it was time for a real match or even just to wrestle off for the varsity spot. My performance would always suffer. And I could remember even feeling, especially before wrestling matches, just feeling nauseous, just waiting for it to be over. You know, when I had a, I loved the feeling of winning, but if I had a forfeit, oh, that was heaven. I, I did not, I did not enjoy the sport, even though, or I, I should say, I didn't enjoy the, the competition of the sport. I enjoyed the sport in and of itself very much, but suffered so much within my own mind because of how important I painted it to be, how high my own expectations were of myself. I find that super interesting. When I was a kid, and I believe we all have been there, there would be moments when I would get anxious or fearful, and I would do anything in my power to avoid those somewhat traumatizing experiences and situations. One thing I remember vividly to this day is that I hated swim class. I was always worried I would drown. I also felt very much like it was a body shaming experience. And at such a young age, you tend to be overly receptive of that and extremely self-conscious. But I would wake up in the morning with all sorts of excuses why I couldn't go to swim class. I even once pretended to have a broken foot just so I would not need to go. <laughs> 
my mom never fell for it, and so I still had to go. But what I find striking is that you identified those situations as triggers for your own anxiety, but you did not really try to get out of them and instead continue to put yourself in the midst of those anxious moments, almost like self-prescribed trauma confrontation therapy. (laughs) Why is that? It's a great question. And when I think about it, I believe there was just always a part of me that wanted to be seen. I could remember learning a new move on my skateboard and immediately wanting to show somebody, learning a new song or beginning to write a song and wanting to show somebody. Or as an athlete, I knew that I was good and I wanted to show it. I wanted people to see it. I wanted to be recognized for it. So my whole life, I imagine I was this uh, this person that wanted to be on the center stage, wanted to be the center of attention. And I'm not sure that if that's in part because I grew up as a middle child. I'm the second to youngest, but I always grew up in the middle. And that desire to be seen was always enough to drive me into these situations that time and time again were extremely uncomfortable. And I just accepted being uncomfortable, not recognizing that it was really intense and really deafening for my performance and that it was something that could be fixed. I wasn't sure what the answer was for a long time, but I there was, again, there was something driving me to continue putting myself in these situations because I wanted to achieve, even though my fear was constantly getting the best of me. You spoke about your sister earlier. Something very tragic, personal, and life-altering happened. Would you like to tell us about it? Yes, my Sister Jess, uh, 16 years older than me, died from an overdose. And leading up to that point, wasn't this ongoing battle with addiction that so many families suffer from? Growing up, I never recognized anything, and there wasn't anything. As I got a little bit older, I knew that she dealt with anxiety and depression and was given probably a couple different types of medication to bring it into balance like most people are. And most people don't know that there's other ways to not just deal, but to process and to heal. So she had her own process for trying to find balance. And it wasn't until maybe the year leading up to her passing that we started to notice that she might not have been her total self. And she lived in New York, we lived in New Jersey, so we weren't with her all the time to really see and understand what was going on. She was in a relationship that maybe we were starting to notice might not be healthy. What we were sensing from her, we weren't thinking, oh, this is heroin, but just a toxic relationship and maybe just not making all the best choices. But again, Nothing that was jumping out at us as this is a big issue and we need to do something about it. And I don't I don't believe it was just I don't believe it was just us being ignorant or in denial or turning a blind eye from my perspective anyways. It was really just a lack of awareness. And then it was the summer of 2018 and I got a phone call from my mom. I was working in Philadelphia. And she said that my sister was found blue 
And at that point, she didn't know that it was an overdose. We just knew that something happened to her body. And she was always very sensitive. She could have an adverse reaction to ibuprofen and her like eyelids and her lips would blow up. So to hear that she was in the hospital wasn't this totally out of the blue thing. But the fact that she was completely unconscious and now in a coma was another level of, whoa, what's what's going on? And we we drove up to New York and we're trying to understand what happened. And she had so, so many friends that were all there in her corner. And while she was in this coma and while we didn't really know how long she was out for, there there was a great amount of hope amongst my family and amongst all of her friends and other family that were there. And we had to wait over the course of 11 days to take the proper brain scans to determine the state of her brain. And it was at the end of 11 days in which she seemed to be improving, like her blood pressure, her coloring, her her heart rate, all the, all these things from the outside, even though she was connected to machines and a, and like a respiratory machine, it seemed like her body was normalizing itself. And so there was all this hope. And then at the end of the 11 days, we were told that she was too far gone. She had been unconscious for so long that the only signs of life that she was showing were purely mechanical. And we then had to unplug her and we had to accept this the most tragic thing that my family or any of us probably had ever experienced, especially my mom. I would like to express my genuine, genuine condolences. I know this affects so many people and it's, it's sad and it's awful. And I kind of hear in your story that there were very silent cries from your sister um, I mean, the messages of, you know, going through depression and, you know, sometimes it's it's easy to think, okay, you know, the person's taking medication, maybe they're going to therapy, they're doing all the right things, and so they must get better, but not everyone does get better. And sadly for some people, you know, drugs are an escape. According to the NIH and data from 2021, 106,000 persons in the U.S. died from drug-involved overdoses that year. A really sad statistic that does not even come close to describing the true magnitude of it all, the people behind those 106,000 individuals, their families, their loved ones, their friends, everyone and everything those dying as a result of an overdose leave behind. There is immense pain and suffering that happens behind many closed doors for the world to not really see. How did your sister's death impact you and your family? The immediate impact was certainly different for each one of us. My mom and my sister's dad, so my, this sister Jessica um, was my half-sister actually. My mom and my sister's dad were clearly the most distraught. My brothers, I can't say what they were feeling, but it was clear that their world had been turned upside down in some way. And while I was still processing all the emotions of grief, the, the sadness, the anger, 
the disappointment, the helplessness, I was able to maintain this perspective that allowed me to flow with this situation and for the emotions to flow through me. So it was clear that everyone around me was suffering greatly, but I was able to maintain this um, silver lining, this perspective of what this situation was doing for us. I was aware that it was helping us grow, that it was here to not be an obstacle, but to be an opportunity. So again, while I experienced all the, all the normal emotions that accompany the loss of a loved one, and while all the people around me were experiencing that too, I believe that I was fortunate to not suffer to the degree that other people might have been simply because of the mindset that I was maintaining and this new spiritual awareness that I had been practicing. Many are quick to judge those struggling with drug addiction and those sadly dying from it. They often consider them weak or even worthless and ignore the fact that these are real people suffering from a disease. Yes, drug addiction, also known as substance use disorder, is a real disease. And we must not become numb to it and ignore the very real people behind that disease. What is something you want the world to know about your sister? What would you like her legacy to be? Jess was certainly something else. She left an impact on everyone that she knew. From as early as I could remember, she was always bearing gifts every time she came to visit She got me a new something. I could remember the Slinky Dog from Toy Story. I remember her taking me to Toys R Us, the, the toy store, and getting this Batman on a purple motorcycle. So she was always treating us like we were special and so deserving of gifts. And she, I don't want to say that she gave gifts to everyone, but she truly treated so many people, especially my brothers and my cousins and her close family, like they were something special. She was everyone's biggest fan. She was always the first to post on Facebook or Instagram and to share your successes, your achievements, and to praise you. She was the first to make a t-shirt with your band on it. She was truly something else. She was someone that was able to shine a light on other people out of what seemed like such a genuine appreciation and admiration of you and what you did. As soon as I was learning segments of songs on the guitar at a very young age, she was having me play them over the phone for her friends. She was having a block party. She was making sure I was playing. If I learned how to do what's called an ollie on the skateboard, She was showing her friends. She was encouraging me to not only acknowledge myself and what I was doing, but to show people, to get up in front of people and to really show people. So this love that she had for other people, and I'm, you know, I'm speaking from the point of view of the younger brother who was truly adored by her. She had this way to uplift people and to and to just be this constant cheerleader for people and we all need that and 
it's you know it's hard to put into a few words or it's hard to can really consolidate but that's really who she was for me and for my brothers she we were her world and she let everyone in the world know that we were her world and she would have ripped somebody's head off if they challenged our well-being she was truly a a guardian angel on earth for each and every one of her siblings and her friends. I could only imagine who she was for them. What a beautiful person and legacy. And if there are listeners out there who are still very much in the midst of their own struggles with substance use, what do you think you would tell them? And perhaps what do you think Jess would tell them? While there are certainly addictions that are more detrimental than others, whether it be alcohol or opioids um, or uppers, every single person, maybe not every single person, but most people have addictive behaviors. I've certainly been addicted to weightlifting and to achievement and to perfecting myself. And while those sound like good things, uh, I wasn't the healthiest version of myself despite that. I was getting injured. And, you know, we have, we're addicted to food, we're addicted to television. And what all these addictions really are is simply the avoidance of the discomfort that we feel when we just sit with ourselves in a moment, which isn't every single moment. But addiction is just a way to avoid. So my addiction to weightlifting was once an avoidance of the fear of not being enough. And that fear was very uncomfortable. So for people who are whatever you might be addicted to, you know, uh, low grade or intense, ask yourself what you might be avoiding and consider the idea of being willing to feel that which is uncomfortable. And it's this willingness to feel the discomfort, this welcoming of all the parts of you, even those darker negative parts of you, the shadows, it's the willingness to feel them that sets us free from them. We're never going to escape them. And and a, another example of myself is I'm never on the stage where there isn't an initial moment of fear in right in my heart. I, my heart wakes up. It starts pumping. I had to learn to allow that, to welcome that, to feel that, and to even appreciate that part of me that was there once I could understand why it was there. It just wanted me to be ready. And that, you know, that's just one, like a single dimensional example. But I truly invite everyone, not just not just people who have addictions that are really harmful, but everybody to ask yourself, what am I avoiding feeling that is uncomfortable? And can I be willing to feel it? Can I buy can I be willing to explore myself to a degree that allows me to become aware of these parts of me that I may have been suppressing or avoiding? Definitely a valuable thing to explore and one that I know you had to learn. Now, you told me that this tragedy of your sister's overdose, something that you describe as your darkest moment, 
because of how it affected you, ended up being a gift as you used the art of surrender to lead you to the doorway to your most authentic self. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes. So let me begin by saying that I had no choice but to learn how to feel comfortable in a moment because I was so anxious to the point, so chronically anxious to the point that my physical body began to have a shakiness to it. And I was aware that this is not right. There's something wrong here. And I got blood work done. I went to a neurologist and there was nothing physically wrong with me. And I'll never forget the neurologist said, Eric, you're as nimble as a cat after he did all these physical tests on me, balancing and doing different things. And he said, I believe this is just in your head. And that was when a seed was planted where I became aware like, okay, how am I causing this physical expression of, of shakiness in my body? And I was fortunate to uh, minor in psychology in school and to be in a class that taught us about anxiety and the way that the primary symptom of anxiety is muscle tension. And in that new awareness, I realized, oh, my, I'm anxious because my mind is constantly anticipating. And in that anxiety, my muscles are getting tense and they're fatiguing and now they're getting shaky. And I was also taught how to relax the body, how to begin meditating, to feel the breath, to contract the body maximally to allow it to then release. And it was there that I first experienced a brief moment of stillness or silence in my mind that helped me recognize that outside of that moment, I was constantly thinking, constantly anticipating. And I began to practice meditation, not consistently, but I was aware like, okay, there's a tool that could help me relax. And it felt good. So, so I continued to, to carry that awareness forward. And then I was at a dentist visit. And she pointed out that I had been clenching my teeth or I was grinding my teeth. And she's like, are, are you stressed about something? And at that point, I thought I was overcoming stress. I was no longer in school. I was working. I was doing well at work. And she gave me a book called The Power of Now. And in essence, this book is saying that the present moment is the most profound and inspiring and powerful place that you could be. And that the present moment is really the only thing that exists. The past no longer exists. The future doesn't exist yet. Once it does, it's the now, it's the present moment again. So it really emphasized the importance of just being present and the importance of surrendering to life that our resistance to life causes our discomfort, our resistance, not just physical resistance, but mental resistance, emotional resistance, that causes our suffering. And a basic Buddhist principle is that we suffer because we desire. But a more perhaps modern way of saying that would be we suffer because we attach ourselves to things. We cling to things. And so while I'm 
understanding all of this conceptually and trying to practice it and and recognizing how my life is becoming easier by becoming more present, by feeling my breath, by feeling my body, by surrendering to the ways that life seems to not be working. You know, when when something doesn't go according to plan to just let it happen. And so when I to fast forward now to when I received the call from my mom in regards to the state of my sister, I was present enough to recognize that I needed to surrender in order for this painful situation to be less painful. I knew there was going to be suffering on some level. I mean, I didn't know that she was going to die, but I knew that this was a difficult situation. And if I were to suffer less, I needed to surrender. I needed to be present, but I needed to let go and not just like let go like, oh, I don't care, but to surrender while trusting that everything is unfolding as it should. Trusting that the universe wasn't this sinister, evil thing, just taking away what I love, but that the universe was actually doing this for me. And that's not always easy to comprehend in those moments. Normally, it's after the fact that we could recognize how something that was an obstacle uh, gave us great benefit. But I was fortunate enough to be present enough in that moment to recognize I need to surrender I'm going to trust the universe and what's happening, and I'm going to look at this as an opportunity for growth. I'm going to be better off for this. And that allowed me to not only flow with this situation and to be able to be this this light for other people in the darkness and to bring in these holistic approaches into the hospital room like essential oils and playing different frequencies for the brain, I was able to physically do something from this place of surrender. But also in this surrender, I was able to process the emotions of a tragic event that most of us suppress because we're too busy thinking about all the things that are happening and the emotions don't flow. So my emotions were able to flow through me, which allowed me to not have this residual grief, like this dark cloud that was constantly following me. I was light on the other side of it. And the final aspect I want to highlight in being in that state of surrender I was able to see that what I was practicing, what I was putting into real action was such a powerfully profound tool that I needed to tell other people about it. I needed to teach people about it. I needed to spread the word. Hey, everybody, tragedies happening everywhere. But if you adjust your mindset, it could be quite beautiful. And while the idea of someone being in a coma for 11 days sounds really daunting, it ended up being like a, this ceremony that was beautiful and, and loving and was like we were sending her off willingly to the other side and accompanying this knowing of the power of what I brought into this situation, this art of surrender, I knew that I needed to spread the word in song. I knew that I needed to use my music. I knew that I needed to sing about it. And my sister was, I could feel her energy. 
I could feel the essence of her letting me know that that's what I was supposed to do. It was like this knowing, this deeper knowing that all is well, and I am supposed to use this to my benefit. And and it's not a bad thing to use my sister's death to my benefit, but that she would want nothing else than for me to sing about what I experienced to serve as a guide for other people experiencing suffering, whether it be addiction or any other aspect of life. This art of surrender applies to it all. You have done quite a bit in your short 30 years on this planet. Singer, songwriter, holistic life coach, athlete, PT tech, trainer, all of it very much focusing on the mind-body-spirit connection. Now, what you just told us a minute ago was very profound, but where do you feel most at home when it comes to that connection? The mind, the body, the spirit? And where do you have the most work left to do? I love that question because my practices over time are always changing. And the part that I'm at now, or the place that I'm at now, is seeing the mind, body, and spirit all as one. So there was a divide in myself. I would practice meditation, trying to silence my mind. I would read these spiritual books or these philosophical um, perspectives of the universe and our place. And, and I would go to the gym and I would work out. And while I was tending to the mind, the body, and the spirit, I was still keeping them separate. Whereas now, when I move my body, when I do yoga or I do a form of Tai Chi called Qigong. It's really about bringing all of your awareness to the body, to the breath. And while we're exercising the body that's in, in a way that's healthy for the physical structure, it's allowing the mind to get quiet. It's allowing the energy and emotions or energy. It's allowing all of that to flow. It's allowing us to connect to our essence, the the deeper part of us that's ever present, and to even open up to that greater energy, the source of us, whatever you want to call that, to connect to something bigger than yourself. So my practices now are are a unification of all these things where, yes, sometimes I'll still strength train and I'm and I'm not uh, connecting to something bigger than myself because I'm, you know, c carrying heavy weight and I'm really focused on the form. But most of the time, it's it's a matter of moving my body, feeling my body, feeling my breath, allowing my thoughts to happen but not clinging to them, and reminding myself in that moment that I am an extension of source energy and. To not get overly spiritual, or I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not religious. I don't, you know, I don't buy into the dogma. But if, if you just bear with me for a moment, if you look at a tree, it's growing out of the ground, which you know, and it branches out, and and there's these leaves that form, and there could be flowers, there could be fruit, and I don't see the human as anything different than just the fruit of the tree or an ex an expression of something else 
which blossoms and then falls and it either breaks down into the ground, becoming the nutrients for the soil, which then gets absorbed back into the roots, or if it, that fruit gets eaten by somebody, which becomes energy, which then eventually gets pooped out again and makes its way back to the earth. It's energy is consistently cycling in and through us. So when I say I try to open myself up and feel myself as an extension of source energy, I'm in that moment, I'm allowing myself to feel connected to the totality of life. I'm not, even though I'm this individual, I'm not separate from anything. And it's that connectedness to my body, my mind, and to the to the universe that is probably the most profound practice that a lot of us could have but in to answer the part where do i think that i need more work i think i could still be more present i think i could still be more in the moment in my heart space trusting that I don't need to have everything figured out yet because I'm very goal-oriented. So while I could be present and I can have my practices, there's often a part of me that's got the goal in mind and it's kind of pushing me along, which is good, but sometimes it could distract me from the totality of the beauty of what's here now. I don't know if I have tomorrow. I don't know if I have the day after that. This moment and Jessica's passing really refined this knowing in that we don't know what we have outside of this moment. It could disappear in an instant, and I'm not going to waste it on petty thoughts, on getting caught in the maze of, you did this to me, and this is what I need, and and all the clutter that tends to fill our minds are like, oh, this person canceled. Oh, I got to do this. So I got to pay my taxes. All the, Oh, that's expensive. The prices go. All this stuff is such a waste of time. So, where where I'm still learning is to not just be more present, but to trust in my intuition. That was something that I turned off. Um, not not turned off, but I lost the ability to interpret the language of my intuition, which is very somatic for me or visceral, meaning I could feel in my body when something is aligned. I could feel in my body when something is calling me forward with excitement. I could feel in my body when I speak something that is very true. So I, so while I mentioned I still have to work on being even more present, I think it's being present with this inner guidance that I have that I became too analytical to understand for a long time. I'm learning this art of intuition now. Now you are in a very happy and healthy relationship with your girlfriend. How did you guys meet? What is the seven plus year secret? And where would you like to see that relationship develop or go in the future? I appreciate this question very much because it's not your, it's not your typical love story. We were two individuals that went to the same school that didn't know each other. She was a grade below me, and we had similar friends, but we never occupied the same space. 
And over time, I noticed that she was someone that would maybe acknowledge a song that I posted or she would be at one of my shows, but we never really interacted with each other. And there was one opportunity where I knew she was going to be at a, it might have, I think it was a 4th of July party. And I knew that she was going to be there and I set the intention to, to, uh, to ask for her number. And she didn't seem, she, she's very reserved and she didn't seem very interested, but she gave me her number. And when we first started talking, she still didn't seem very interested. But the more that I continued to communicate with her and slowly but surely connect with her, I began to recognize this very beautiful person that was that was different than what I was familiar with. And there's this one moment that she remembers me talking about, but there was this moment of just pure bliss because of how silent I was with her in this moment. And my my younger brother, this is kind of a side note, my younger brother was staying with us for a little bit and he was like, man, you guys really like silence, don't you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess because like we'll just be, you know, we could just sit in silence. We could have our cup of coffee and yeah, we'll talk a little bit, but we don't have music blast. And we don't just have the TV on for no reason. Um, so anyway, so seven years is interesting because it's not linear. It's very rhythmic. And slowly but surely, you show each other all of the ways in which you have these unhealthy patterns, right? So there's always the honeymoon phase, which was amazing. But then there is a long period of us just triggering each other or not knowing how to resolve some of the feelings we were having, even though there was nothing, you know, there was nothing crazy happening. There's no infidelity. There's nothing nothing crazy, but just like this, um, this lack of alignment, so to speak, or just like not feeling on the same page and both of us being so patient with each other and level-headed, we're able to just kind of allow, not, not agree to disagree, but just to let things kind of come to a, a stalemate and then just let it go. And while that worked for a while there, we noticed there was a stagnancy. So more in the last year and the pandemic, I think, amplify any relationship issue you had during the pan. Then during the pandemic, it was amplified. You couldn't escape it. You were with each other more. Every, you know, there's more tension. So we got to the point where we realized, okay, we need to learn how to communicate better. My approach for understanding my own hangups and my own emotions and habits is going to be different than hers. So we allowed ourselves to do what we each needed to do individually to be able to communicate with each other better. And, you know, this last year has been a, a real acceleration of our connection because we were deliberately learning how to communicate better, how to connect, understanding what both of us want as individuals and together because it's so easy to just get comfortable and i'm i i'm guilty of being so goal oriented that if something just seems good it's easy for me to just kind of leave it but i recognize okay this relationship this person that i'm with all the time and that i plan to be with for a very long time it needs to be nurtured just as much as everything else Circling back to something you said early on during our conversation, 
you are a middle child. And I personally know, based on my experience, that being a middle child is not the greatest position in the family tree, at least for the middle child, because it can feel a little alienating at times, a little lonely. You're more likely to be somewhat ignored as a middle child. At least that has been my experience or that was my experience growing up. Now, how is the relationship with your family now after you have learned so much, you've come to so many realizations? How has the relationship to your family evolved? I'm fortunate to be able to say that I have a very beautiful relationship with my parents, but they're, they're on the other side of the country. So they live in California on the West Coast, and I'm over here in New Jersey on the East. And while I'm able to get along with them well and get along with my whole family, they're certainly the first ones to bring out the parts of me that are still unintegrated. While I might seem like a peaceful or very patient person, they're the first people that I could lose patience with. I believe that they're, I don't want to say the clearest mirror, but the most intense mirror, and that they reflect back to me the aspects of myself that I cannot see clearly or that I haven't fully been able to understand perfectly. So while my parents are wonderful support for me and my music and they're always encouraging me and they're always giving me such great feedback and they're always so loving. They also show me when I'm clinging to this idea of being the person that could help people or save people or or change people. And they show me that I can only be an example of what I want to see in other people. And they show me how to love unconditionally, meaning that there's no condition that changes how you feel. So I've had to learn how, while I, I, I think that they're beautiful people and great people, there's moments where I need to recognize that I have to accept them and love them exactly as they are, while recognizing when I still may need a boundary for myself. And, you know, I, w I won't go into too much detail, but recognizing when I'm overextending myself and would benefit from anchoring myself or creating this boundary that allows me to maintain my own alignment while still being there for them as a loving son. As mentioned before, music plays a ginormous role in your life. Tell us more about that journey. How is it going and where would you love for it to go? Like I mentioned before, I've been playing the guitar since I was very young. I got my first guitar at seven. And I believe like most artists, we go through phases of recognizing our own ability to create something that's unique and authentic and worth listening to. I didn't allow myself to really write and find my own sound until after high school. And I 
created a band with a couple of my closest friends that we called Moon Days, where I really began to explore as a, a singer-songwriter. And yet I was still limiting myself because I had these expectations of what maybe good music sounded like or what people wanted to hear. And through that process of being with this band, I was able to then recognize there was another part of me that wanted to write differently. And I allowed myself to begin writing in the style that I thought maybe was a little too familiar. I, I began to write in the style that was like the music my sister first introduced me to. So that like some of the pop punk and the grunge and the more alternative music, I started to allow that to come out which I kind of was suppressing because I didn't think that other people wanted to hear it. And once I began to let myself write like that, my songs became more dynamic. The way that I sang changed, the meaning in my songs were changing, but that was congruent with my new awareness of myself in relation to life. And then when my sister passed, there was an even greater shift. I had been writing a song prior to that, leading up to that, in which I was lyrically trying to capture the nature of the universe that um, so many teachers that I like listening to would do, because they, they say you can't put a label on it. You can't really speak about what the universe really is, because it's not words. Um, words are just symbols of ideas, which are just symbols of reality. So I began writing this song where I'm describing kind of the essence of the flow of life. And then while I was in the hospital, I realized that what I was writing about was describing what I was experiencing with my sister. So in this song, every time I used the word it, I then changed it to she. And I wrote the first song of a new project called Rhea called She is Home. And I then created a whole album that was in honor of this more alternative sound that my sister got me into, but also greatly reflecting all this new insight that I had that helped me so profoundly. And it took, while the, we learned the songs pretty quickly and recorded it pretty quickly, it took me a while to actually release it, to feel like I was ready to release it. And while all that's happening, I'm on this like parallel path of becoming an entrepreneur, um, transitioning from a trainer to a coach to, to certifying as a life coach and recognizing at the more that I learned about myself and what was important to me and what excited me and what really lit me up and really allowed me to feel like my true self the more I recognized I needed to bring the coaching and the music together. Um, not just music, general music uh, and coaching, but my music, my perspective, which is reflective of other perspectives, but my authentic way of expressing needed to accompany everything else that I preach, so to speak, or practice or try to give guidance on. And I began to do workshops where I would tell some of my story and I would highlight the perspectives that helped me and I would maybe teach a practical tool. I would also then sing a song that seemed to really capture the essence of what I was saying or that could really express 
the the degree to which I had been affected by what I'm sharing to really walk the walk and not just talk the talk because a lot of what I talk about is how to open up your way of creating to be this artist of life. And so I started to do that and coming back to this song that I wrote about my sister, while the song I I believe is be- it's a beautiful ode to my sister and it captures this powerful moment of awareness and awakening in my life, I felt that it needed to be contextualized. I needed to tell the story leading up to that song. So that's what I did. And in the form of poetry, I wrote the story of what happened to my sister from the moment I get the phone call leading into that song as kind of being like the uh, the peak expression and resolve of this tragic experience, the gift of that. And once I did that, I realized I could do this with a number of songs. I could do this with my whole life. I could write a musical like this. And I started like getting this idea of this big production in my mind. And then the fear came back up that said, you, you know, who are you to write a musical? That's too big of a production. How are you going to find people to do that? That's too much. And so it sat for a long time. But then I had the realization that I could create this in audio form. And that's what I'm creating right now where it's it's all written, it's all created, but now we're beginning to record it. And it's a, a self-help rock opera that takes the listener through my story, through all the emotions, through all the suffering, and through the ways in which I set myself free while breaking up the, not breaking up the story, but creating these pinnacles in the story of expression with my songs. And it's the most authentic thing that I've done yet and authentic because it's literally my story, but it, but it's really this act of self-love for myself to really tell my story and acknowledge myself and honor myself and expose myself so vulnerably to anyone that listens to it. It's this act of self-love that's been just a healing journey for me to create, but something that I intend and imagine will be healing for other people to be able to connect with and see themselves in and feel their own emotions and also be shown a way, not the way, but one way to get free from self-induced suffering and to wake up from the illusion that we all get caught in as a human on this earth. And here for the world to listen is Rhea, R-R-H-E-A, with She Is Home. Thank you, Eric, for sharing that with us. And here it goes.
That was wonderful. Thank you so very much, Eric, for being here, raw, open, willing to share so very much of yourself with us. All of you out there, please get your questions to us. I would love to do a follow-up with Eric. Now, if people want to find out more about you and your music and everything that you have going on, what can they do? Thank you so much for having me, Stefan. It's been wonderful uh, to be heard by you and your audience and to be asked such thought-provoking questions that assist me in processing my experience and, and how far I've come. For people to follow me, I have a Linktree account that I could share the address for, but my coaching is uh, something that I call Easenflow, which is E-Z-E-N-F-L-O-W, and I have a Linktree account in which you could access my Instagram. You could access uh, my band Rhea, which is R-R-H-E-A. You could access the music through there, my website, um, upcoming breath workshops if you happen to be local, as well as a exercise that is a great sample of what this rock opera is going to be. So accompanying the rock opera is going to be a workbook that takes the the witness or the observer through several introspective and meditative processes to not only expand your awareness and integrate certain emotions, but to assist you in getting into action in a way that is aligned with your most authentic self. So on my link tree, I ha- there's a song called Swarming which is about the freedom of childhood. And it's going to be one of the first songs on the rock opera. But accompanying this song is what I call a self-tuning exercise, which is to guide you into that energy that you've felt at at least one point in your life, that feeling of freedom, that feeling of limitlessness, and to 
assist you in turning that energy that you feel into an action that continues to nurture that part of you. What a unique, creative, and self-aware person Eric is. I find the idea of surrendering yourself to life very inspiring. Just think about how often we get hung up on what we believe are the big things we have to live through. When in reality, we have so little control over so many things that just happen to us. It's kind of freeing to let go sometimes, to take a breath and to just acknowledge that we are, period. No explanation or further clarification needed. If you want to know more about Eric, his work, his music, please check the episode guide with his Linktree link. Now, if there are questions for Eric, perhaps requests for more breath work or even tour dates for Rhea, you can get in touch with me in a number of ways. We are on YouTube and I would love for you to subscribe to like the audio video <laughs> for this podcast episode and to comment. Eric may even respond personally. You can also call our virtual voicemail number at 864-501-5033. That is 864-501-5033. Of course, there's Instagram, Facebook, and I gave in. And yes, we are even on TikTok. You can find us as Thoughtvolution. I appreciate every single follower, subscriber, TikTok sharer. Please also rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. You are the reason I'm doing this podcast. And hearing from you about how some of these stories touched your life is the most wonderful, magical thing in the whole world for me. So thank you for that. And thank you for helping us build a community where everyone feels safe and welcome with their own stories. I'm still waiting to hear your story. There's an intake form on our website, thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. And if you fill it out, I promise to get in touch and to be your personal story sharer. The world out there cannot wait to hear what you have experienced. It can be whatever it is. Some stories are sad, some are uplifting, some are horrifying, some are thought-provoking, some make people laugh, some make people cry. They are all unique. All of them are worth sharing. Heck, if millions of people are fascinated by one of the Kardashians cutting a cucumber, do you really think that your trauma, your travel through life, your daily survival is not a million times more captivating? I think it is. I've been doing this show for 10 episodes now, and every single person changed how I view the world a little bit. This is truly impactful. The days of feeling small are over. It is my belief that this is the time for you and me and all of us thought evolutionists to shine. Real people change the world. Real stories make a difference. So come and share your journey and make sure to meet me back here next week. I love you and it really is time for all of us to be kind to each other.